Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a filmmaker whose work has been keeping the spirit of Hollywood's golden era alive. With his films Baby Jane and Hush Up Sweet Charlotte, he's given cinema's leading ladies a touch of drag revisionist history. His short film Monty explored the final days of an icon, and his feature I Want to Get Married took on the world of same-sex marriage. Recently, he completed a documentary about the advocate and its history. Please welcome to the show, Billy Cliff. Why, thank you so much. So happy to be here. Thank you for joining us, Billy. It ah. is long overdue. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, well, why don't we just kick things off and, and barrel right into it? So I'll start the show with the same first question that I ask every guest. Wonderful. Which is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your relationship to horror? Why do you think horror appeals to people? But why horror? I think we love to be scared. I personally adore horror, I, I, I like, like of course, your, your other listeners. But, you know, I mean, you, you said names where, uh, you know, my Baby Jane uh, parody and my Hush Up Sweet Charlotte was horror of at one time. When mm-hmm. it came out, it was considered true horror. Uh, but, of course, it's shifted since then. And uh, um, I love today's horror as well. I mean, I just got us. I just saw The Quiet Place, which I thought was brilliant. I mean, I love so many kinds of horror from cheeky to whatever, and it just titillates you. It just keeps you on the edge of your seat when it's good mm-hmm. and it, it, or it can make you laugh. And, and, and it just it, it just hits all these buttons inside your emotions, which I think we love. We got enough stuff going on in the world that that this is actually a total distraction to me to sit down for an hour and a half or however long the film is or sit at home, at your, you know, and, and be looking at it. I just love to get so involved with these characters, even if it's ridiculous, you know, and and be taken out of all that stuff. Uh, I must admit, one of the reasons why I think I didn't like the last American Horror Story is because I was taken to a place we are in. And right. that was the most horrific place that I would possibly want to be. I don't want to be in something that I am totally in. Sure. But typically, I love being scared. I love being titillated. I love being put on a roller coaster and not knowing where you're going to go, even if you figured out the end. (laughs) So for you, horror is about the escapism. Yes. That's interesting because, you know, horror affects people in different ways. And so I like that your approach is I want to uh, forget the terror of the real world by uh, investing in fictional terror. Yes. And is is that coming from a place of both escapism and catharsis, would you say? Oh, or? totally. Totally. Yeah. I love that. I, well, I've always felt that catharsis uh, in horror is very important. Yes. Uh, and I, it's a quote that I have referenced many times, uh, in, but it's been a number of episodes since I've brought it up. <laughs> well, uh, thank God it's time. <laughs> is uh, Wes Craven once famously said, we don't go to see horror movies to be scared. We go to horror movies for catharsis. Mm. And uh, I think there's truth in that. I think especially if you are part of a demographic that the world is a little extra tough on. Exactly. The escapism is all the more important. Yeah, totally, totally. And we are definitely part of that. Yes. And being of a certain age, you know, I've gone through the process of seeing so much, you know, I mean, yes, it's gotten better. But of course, in our current situation, we've seen some backlashes as well. Right. But I, I, I... I forget you know, doing the doc that I'm sure we'll talk about later has really taken me back into time and remembering so much pain, actually, mm-hmm. so much pain that got to where we are today. And I remember being in the center of it growing up in Hollywood. I mean, I was I was part of that. Right. 
um, anyway, as I go off and off and off. <laughs> well, we we love a tangent here on Dead for Phil. Uh, so you did grow up in Hollywood. You yes. are you are a native of Hollywood. Yeah. I uh, wasn't born here, but I I came here when I was a little kid. My father okay. was a DJ, and he had a he had a, he uh, was a DJ for a place in Seattle and here. So you just never knew where. Like my sister was born here, mm-hmm. I was born in Seattle. So but came down when I was little. I don't really know it. Right. So, but I know it was there. <laughs> gotcha. So, but you grew up around the world of movies. Yes. So your trajectory m- might be different than from a lot of uh, my other guests who maybe grew up in parts far distant and kind of came to movies and realized that this is what they wanted to do. And Hollywood was the goal because you were here amongst the culture. Exactly. It was my world. Yeah. So tell me about that growing up experience. And did you know from like point A that you, this is what you wanted to do? I knew that I wanted to be in the business, and, mm-hmm. and I didn't know 100% what that looked like. Uh, at one time, um, an actor, you know, was definitely uh, a dream uh, to a singer to to writing stuff, stuff, right. you know, but didn't know what that was, even plays. Right. It was really just anything in the creative world seemed to hit that thing inside me that I knew that I had to do no matter what. And there was that time when I remember my dad looking at me, okay, so what are you going to be? Are you going to be like a director, writer? Are you going to be an actor? Are you going to be, you know, what what are you going to do in the business? It wasn't like, are you going to be a lawyer? No, it was, this is, this is what we do. Right. You know, so, and I, you know, I fuddled around and I, I remember, you know, but that's, that's, I decided that's, well, there was nothing in me to decide. It was just which one. Right. <laughs> and you did kind of actually come to directing a little later, right? You had a yeah. trajectory through different gigs. Yeah. Tell me about some of your other gigs in the industry that led into the world of directing. Uh, well, uh, definitely I started, definitely I started as a model, darling. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate to say it, I started doing that because it was easy. Is that true? And Yeah. It was really easy for me because I could just come in and uh, uh, smile mm-hmm. and whether they liked you or they didn't. Yeah. It was real simple. You got the job or you didn't. And uh, um, uh, back then you didn't have to be the muscly thing that you have to do today. So I was just skinny, you know, just uh, like I think I weighed 160, 55, 60 pounds, my height, which is 6'1". And that's all I needed to do and right. bone structure, you know, right. <laughs> give me bone structure. Great. Can you wear a suit? Great. You know, and that's what I always did. I was always thrown in tuxedos and suits and all that kind of shit. And mm-hmm. I'd be 18. Right. Anyway, um, so that and, and at the same time, I was also going to acting school and uh, I had a manager and an agent and uh, I looked 28 at 18. So I would go and be put out constantly for jobs. And it was always I would get I would go back and back and then I never could get it because they're saying you are only 18. Right. You can't play a 26 year old. And it was always and, and I was not tell them and then they'd find out because my manager just don't tell them anything. Right. You know, <laughs> you're not supposed to. Right? right. You're an undisclosed age that fits these these points. Undisclosed age is like such a Hollywood term. <laughs> it true is. Who what? knows? Who knows? I'm right. between year and year. You know, whatever you want me to be. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I did that, but it did not work. Right. So the modeling would pay the bills for a while. And then I finally went, well, I can't be pretty forever. Gosh darn it. So I went to hair school because it was something I would watch the hair and makeup people when I was working all the time in a, in a, on a shoot. And I went, well, that looks really easy. So I started picking it up and just playing with, you know, working right. on friends' hair and stuff like that. And even cutting, starting to cut their hair. I said, oh, this is this is something that comes natural to me. Right. Why don't I do this? And I know that I can make a really decent living mm-hmm. and still be in the business. And uh, but uh, um, I but I must admit, I always wanted more. Right. So it took many years and really after my friend died, who we can talk about now or later, whatever, Elizabeth Montgomery. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> after she passed away was as as deaths can be, as they can, sh- you know, just break everything in your side, inside right. you and just force you to look at your whole entire world. And she really was, uh, along with the whole world of AIDS and all that, she became the that that thing that mm-hmm. that did it for me. And I went, I, I want to direct. I right. want to write. I want to do something inside me to express right. that is more than just those other things. So that's where I came upon where I am today. Right. Well, since you mentioned Elizabeth Montgomery and how her passing away was sort of an inciting moment for you to, to take the step to, to directing, I know how important that friendship was to you. So let's talk a little bit about her. You met her because of your work doing hair, right? Right, right. Yeah, I, I did a photo shoot for her, her photographer uh, in, I think, 81 or 82. Uh, I'd been a hairdresser. I'm a, or a hair and makeup artist for a year, maybe, mm-hmm. and got that gig. And he says, you know, you've got the right stamina. I think you could deal with her. And I think, I think, because she had just, um, her, her hair and makeup person had left. Right. Somehow, I never heard the story, didn't care. All I cared about is it was gone. Right. <laughs> they were gone, and she was looking for someone new, but I, I didn't even know. I mean, he went on and on about this woman, blah, 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 and then he finally said, well, it's Elizabeth Montgomery, and she wants to see you, you know, like Thursday, which was like later on in that week. And I just like went, <gasps> because right. I like most gay men or who, I think anybody during um, in my age group that – watched that show religiously right bewitched yeah had some kind of a, a crush on her in some way shape or form mm-hmm. and of course that continued on because it was on nick at night or whatever it went on tv land excuse me tv and land yeah. it became big and uh, uh for many years and can still be seen probably everywhere uh and um i remember so clearly just uh, uh driving up her you know big driveway and on benedict canyon and and you know you get you see the tennis courts and the olympic sized swimming pool and then finally you come to the house and this big english Tutor number. Wow, back when know. TV paid. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. She was also a producer on that show because she and her husband helped create it. Oh, smart. Yeah, yeah, so she was actually the only one on the show that got residuals. Even smarter. Yeah, only yeah. actor on the show. That's why Dick York, poor Dick York, died penniless. Mm. But anyway, who cares? Um, no, I don't. I think that that's sad. Yeah. I, I, I do care. Anyway. <laughs> so uh, I, I so remember that moment. Right. That uh, getting being taken into the living room of this huge house and standing there waiting for her and her coming up to me. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I, I'll never forget it. Her walking up and I'm going, oh, my God, that is 
my childhood idol as right. well as someone I just really respect. And she, she stopped and I was still standing. I couldn't sit down anywhere. I just couldn't feel, feel comfortable enough doing. And she just looked at me and she says, hi, I'm Lizzie. <laughs> and she put her hand out after she had looked at me from the bottom to the top. And she gave an, uh, and then she nodded, and then she came out and said it and shook, shook my hand, mm. and that was it. It was like this instant, uh, kind of like, yes, you'll yeah. do, right? <laughs> you know, you're you're right. <laughs> I love that. That feels like such a Hollywood story, that I think that the 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 modern era of stars don't have that mystique. No. No, and then of course she comes from that old mystique because her yeah. father and her her whole family was of that world. You know, right. her dad was um, Robert Montgomery, right? Uh, and was in so many major '30s, '40s movies. Was a huge star. They grew up in Beverly Hills. She was of that whole ilk, right? And he even by the time she was acting, he had his own show on television, his The Robert Montgomery Hour, which she ended up being on. Uh, but, uh, uh, she, her, her, you walked even into her house and you're going through the hallway, huge, you know, your foyer and you're seeing pictures of Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and James, uh, Jimmy, uh, Durante and, and Cagney and just everyone. And they're all, they're like family pictures. They weren't, you know, hi to you. They were, you know, like her friends, they were yeah. her friends and they right. were her family and they were photographs that were that way, not you know, right. and she would always laugh. She said, oh, yeah, Cagney used to always dance. He would dance. He would even come here before I left and he would dance through it and come into the, the, the dining room while we were all eating and twirl around, you know. <laughs> so she had that same tone and understanding of right. how you treated people uh, uh, and that mystique, but also incredibly kind and gracious. And from that moment of meeting her. At her house, you uh, worked with her and became her friend, and you knew her for how many years? Well, until she passed away, which was 1995. Wow. And you met her when? Uh, uh, 82. Wow. That's, a, that's quite a stretch. It was, and because it was a, a major point of her last bit of her TV films as well, which mm -hmm. I started doing, uh, as well as just coming over to the house to get her ready to go out. Because I, I, I'll never forget when, when even that first year, she said, oh, my God, I'm on the cover of Acquirer and I look like crap. William, you're coming over every time I have to leave the house. <laughs> uh, can you imagine? That, that to me is definitely of that era. I can't, you know, the idea that you have to have a, a hair and makeup person. And now celebrities leave in sweatpants. They do, but you do just, you do see that they take care of things. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, uh, they've got hair and makeup. You do, we watch the reality shows. We know how all oh, of them true. have their people. They've got masses of people. Well, yeah. <laughs> since we're talking about Elizabeth Montgomery, and you talked about sort of that connection of a generation of uh, gay men who gravitated towards Bewitched, uh, one of the things that we like to talk about in the show is, you know, when something like that is embraced by the queer community, uh, there's obviously a reason why, why that and not F troop or something from that era, you know? And, yeah. I, and so F troop, I know, right? <laughs> Look, I, I pulled one out of the sky. Yeah, that is truly uh, <laughs> petticoat. I'm junction. sure he's never heard of F troop, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I think that I, I mean, there is a queer narrative to be which that, makes sense i think that gay men and queer people of the era would gravitate to because she is other and there's otherness and there's this sort of like heightened almost drag world 
of of the of the witches. And Dora is a drag queen. Totally, totally. Uh, and I 100 percent agree. And she understood that her friends were all gay. The only person any, you know, I would go out to dinner with her constantly from the beginning. Uh, but of course, towards the end, it got more and more where I was seeing her all the time. But uh, uh, and it was always the gay guys. You right. know, I mean, her and Paul and she would talk about even, you know, back in Bewitched. And she and Paul would go out for liquid lunches <laughs> and they would have to shut down the set for the rest of the afternoon. I mean, she just that's who she loved. She loved the other, so to speak, because she loved the the creativity and the excitement and right. the, uh, living life. And she was that kind of human being. She lived. She she sp- she truly did so sparkle as a human being you ever met her and you hung around with her anyone would just go oh my god right she's just magical she really was a magical human being uh and um she she and her husband uh uh who of course also did uh, i love lucy right um why he's asher william asher thank you for telling me in my brain somewhere <laughs> it's always weird when a name comes up and you're right. like well where did that come from uh, like f troop uh, and uh, William Asher, he directed all the, all the I Love Lucy's. So he had that sense of tone, right? Right. And, but he uh, and his wife, Elizabeth Montgomery, got together and they went, we got to find a product for right. you. Uh, she'd done a few t- uh, movies and she wasn't satisfied with where they were going, which was, of course, the young sex pot. Right. And that's not who she felt like she really, really was. Mm-hmm. So they went, hey, what's wrong with TV? It's comfortable. It's easy. Let's do it. Right. And they came up with this together. And there's something so cool about Samantha Stevens, even now. Like, if you look at the sitcoms of the era, like, all the other female leads were sort of very housewife. Yes. Like, with their, with their like, skirts. And she had, like, pants. And she was... She was, this, she was modern. She was modern and she was hip. Yeah. And uh, what I like about the narrative of the show is that she's modern and hip and n- never mind that she's a witch. Just merely by uh, proxy of just being her own liberated woman. Exactly. It's sort of like vexes the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> Miss, Mrs. Kravitz is always like creeping around. And what's more queer than that? They're like, they're living their lives and it bothers me. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And Abner won't listen. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know she tries to turn everybody you know against her in some way shape or form but it never works because she's fabulous i have to say though since you said it i've been just like in my head thinking about how i want to go and have uh just an alcoholic lunch with paul lind Um, oh my god it's like my dream wouldn't that be amazing can i come please because i think that would have been phenomenal i say this all the time and i know someone's eventually going to steal the idea uh because it makes sense to do it so like as long as it happens honestly (laughs) I, i i want a Poland biopic in the world. I think, I think it would be wonderful. Yeah, th- it's it's a hard sell, of course. Yes, yeah. But you know, it was a hard sell for uh, um, uh, the Candelabra one. Yeah, the he Libretia. couldn't he couldn't sell that at all. And he finally got a, a home with HBO. But nobody thought nobody's going to want to see this. Well, they did, they, and it did yeah. well. So I hope. Well, there's a narrative of of queer men who we, as a culture, knew were. Gay men who are essentially kind of out gay men in an era where they couldn't come out. But right. if you watch Hollywood Squares, yeah. Paul Lind is there making like butt sex jokes right. to housewives in the middle of the country. And they're all going, oh, right. you know, they're being, you know, Japanese tourists. Yeah, it was sort of like one of those things that <laughs> as long as he didn't say it out loud, 
it was skirted around. Charles exactly. Nelson Riley was exactly the same. Exactly, and that was definitely the era. Yeah. Everything was scooted around, right. and you're and you're constantly seeing it on shows, uh, even on Bewitched, so things that could have been, right. you know. You know Oh, <laughs> goodness. Well, uh, yeah, I'm so glad we got to talk about the, it, your friendship with Elizabeth Montgomery and sort of the queer connection to Bewitched, because I think there is one, because that is something that we've always talked about on the show, is the is what makes a queer narrative right. and finding she, that otherness. She loved horror as well. Oh, yeah. And that I, I remember she did one like horror TV movie um, way before, of course, I worked with her. I, I, I couldn't tell you what it is, but I can see it in my head because I remember, you know, being so close to the TV, watching it so clearly. She loved doing horror and she would have loved to do another horror film. Well, a couple weeks ago, uh, our guests from the UK, Alexander Birrell and Joshua Tonks, were talking about a TV movie that she was in called The Victim. And that was it. And where she uh, she goes to visit her sister in wine country, but her sister's dead in the basement, and she's like creeping around trying to find. That's like, the one, the and, and that's the horror one that I was talking about. And it's it's really. But she also was in the Legend of Lizzie Borden. Yes. So yes. I think that she she definitely that's definitely she yeah. loved that. Uh, of the TV movies that you uh, did her hair for, which is your favorite? I loved a murder and uh, no, um, God, sins of the mother. I don't know if you ever saw that, no. but she plays a, an evil, evil woman who has a young son who she has manipulated into this ma- very handsome mass of mess, you know, <laughs> I mean, really. And she's just a CU, you know what I mean? Yeah. She's just terrible. She's just terrible. And it's just every line is a one liner. It truly is a, a perfect uh, gay movie as well, because all she does is one liners. Well, and that's why I asked. I knew that you would have a recommendation. And uh, one of the things I like to do is point my listeners to, towards new things. And if we're going to talk about Elizabeth Montgomery, of course, revisit Bewitched, but also exactly. discover something new. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that that was the first TV movie I did with her, and it was just so much fun. There's even, and she was crazy too. The woman was crazy. So I mean, there was one scene where where her son is dating this young man, and she's decided that she's she wants to look like Scarlett O'Hara. So she comes out in a quasi modern version of the dress, and I did her hair and makeup like Scarlett O'Hara, and she comes <laughs> down a staircase. You know, I mean, how ridiculous <laughs> is that, right? For a TV movie in the in the nineties, you know. <laughs> Well, you know I love a TV movie, so uh, sometimes those TV movies have uh, more going on than films that were released at the time because they're such time capsules. Yes, yes. Uh, I, you know, I, I work a lot in the world of TV movies of now, but the one thing I do think that we're lacking in the modern landscape is the the network TV movie that used to be such a oh yeah event. oh it's Thursday night let's right. watch the Thursday night movie. And as a horror fan, there were some gems like the things that Dan Curtis would do, like uh, Dead of Night or oh, yeah. uh, Trilogy of Terror. Yeah, those things are t- are to me just such zeitgeist defining moments that we don't really get anymore. Yeah, uh, totally. Which is a real shame. Yeah, totally. I agree. Unless some some fortuitous individual is going to bring them back. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I do love what they're doing on uh, Amazon Prime has a series, and uh, what is it? Netflix has a series of different. Um, you know where they yeah, change constantly right. every week, and they're pretty amazing. I mean, they're real. It's so nice to see that they have done that. Right. Uh, but yes, how amazing! ABC should be doing it. Come on, right. ABC, and bring me in to direct one of them. You heard it here first. <laughs> well, speaking of directing, we talked about uh, how after uh, 
Lizzie passed away in 1995, it sort of lit the fire under you to yes. move towards directing. Exactly. And so, it, it wasn't quick. I mean, right. uh, um, uh, I, I, I moved. I, I had to, like, really reevaluate before I really came to that moment. Mm-hmm. And I worked for a couple more years in Hollywood. And then I moved to San Francisco. Right. And um, started working and just wanted to, like, gel out right. and just be— Nothing. Right. Even though I was still doing hair and makeup, but I was doing it for like Macy's and Mervyn's and all that kind of right. stuff in San Francisco. And then really, really allow that to percolate. Tell me about the culture shock of living in L.A. your whole life and then going to San Francisco. Because I don't think people uh, we do have listeners all around the world. Uh, and what they don't realize, uh, people who aren't in California quite understand is that San Francisco is not only not right next door, but uh, it is also a freezing, (laughs) not what I was going to say, but very accurate. Yes. Uh, They get all the cold weather. We don't and they can keep it. Exactly. Um, Exactly. But I, I do think that the cultures of the cities couldn't be more different. And I've worked a lot in San Francisco and I love it. Oh yeah. But I think that it is also one of those places that if you come with an LA mentality, it's very strange. It, it, it really is. And and also, I mean, I, I, I think I come up, come possibly with a, even a different L.A. mentality than people who have moved here. Yes. Um, uh, so that's different as well. Mm. Uh, um, uh, well, for one thing, I don't think the people who are from here, I'll go a little bit into that. And what I meant is that the fact that we don't really have the fakeness, I think, yeah. that the people who move here are. And I get it yeah. because you move to a place. It's so it's so. I don't even know the right word, but it's it's you don't you can't even figure out what this whole thing is. And you're coming here and you're going, OK, I'm going to become an actor. And you don't know what the hell that is yeah. to be that or how to be that. So I actually do understand it. So they look at something and they assimilate and they try to become that. Yes. And that often isn't the best thing for them right. because they often repel, but they don't know. So right. I really actually have a lot of I understand. Mm-hmm. So moving to San Francisco, first of all, the weather. It's like all of a sudden I had to buy coats, which I was happy about. Right. I like the idea of buying coats. I do like that. Right. <laughs> well, you are a fashion forward person and men's outerwear always looks good. Exactly. If, and you can always throw that on. Yeah. You can be wearing something basic underneath. You have a fabulous coat. You throw it on and you feel good and put good shoes on, of course. I hope you're anyway, all taking notes. Exactly. Yeah. It's real simple. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I only wear a T-shirt and jeans these days, but you put on a good, good, and really good pair of shoes right. and maybe a good belt. There yes. you go. <laughs> anyway, um, so the the mindset in San Francisco, of course, is a lot more lackadaisical. Yeah, uh, I uh, uh, it's um, it's a totally different world of being a star. There is being a drag queen, right? And I think that's fascinating and wonderful, and I appreciate it all. But I couldn't, I didn't understand right. until I decided to do, you know, do something with it because right. that's where I was. Was San Francisco uh, your first real collision with drag culture? I know that drag queens existed in L.A., but not like there. No, no. Yeah, yeah the, the drag queen to me was, now mind you, that's not totally true. I, I actually would go to a, a drag strip. Oh, yeah. The Uh, legendary drag show. And that was actually the same. Right. It was identical to Trinity Shack, so to speak. And which was, which, so I knew 
right. I knew what that was, uh, but I didn't know that that was all there was, really. Right. <laughs> you know, that is it. Mm-hmm. This was just a facet here. Yeah, I know, right. Mr., you know, Mr. Dan, I actually live next door to Mr. Dan. I've right. known him since way, way back then. For those listeners who might need a uh, little bit of insight, Mr. Dan used to be the host of Drag Strip 66, which was a legendary drag venue here in Los Angeles. He hosted uh, as a drag queen named Gina Lotreman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was... Uh, pretty much one of the most legendary drag parties in gay history. To the degree, there are several moments where post-LA riots, the police came to shut down uh, Drag Strip 66, and Mr. Dan in full geesh would stand on top of the roof of a car with a megaphone and be like, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> and it's amazing. Like, I mean, those are definitive moments in queer history exactly. that began at a drag bar here in Los Angeles. I, am, I, I did not know that information. And I, of course, I lived here, but I did not know that part. And I'm, I'm I've, sorry. I don't, I'm so I've glad seen I the know footage. It. I would love to see that. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. And uh, um, oh, what was I going to say? I don't know. But uh, moving to San Francisco... Uh, it, it definitely was, a like a, the way everybody works there, especially when I first moved there, it's right. changing so much cause it's all tech these days. Yes. It just had a totally different vibe and totally feel. And uh, I must admit it's hard, but it is hard anywhere to actually meet people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I did exactly what I do here, which is I just start having huge parties. Right. That's where I've always learned is how to do it, how to get to know people and how to get people to know you. And your parties are great. And you feed thank people you. well, I, which I appreciate. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, I knew that's how I've learned. I've learned right. that from when I was young and I would hang out with all the French chefs here mm-hmm. in uh, uh, the man who owned Le Petit Four on Sunset Plaza, yeah, there was a whole group of, this is really going off track, but a whole group of, of, of French chefs and uh, French people in general moved here in the early 80s to fix L.A. because it had no food. It had no real culture. Oh, God bless the French. <laughs> so they all moved here. And they started opening French boutiques, um, uh, you know, cute little stores with things, you know, special things and restaurants right. because we had terrible food. We really did. Which now, if you live in L.A., we've got some of the best restaurants the in the world. The best restaurant in the world. Yeah. Exactly. But they were the ones who came here and did it. And they knew that they were doing. And we, would, uh, my boyfriend, my boyfriend, my best friend was his boyfriend. And so we, I would be there all the time. So you really learned how important breaking bread was. Yeah. And that's what I do with my parties is I'm breaking bread with people. And mm-hmm. I think that's, the, that's one of the most amazing times is for you to connect. So that's what I, I did in, in, in San Francisco is I just started having big parties so I could start learning and meeting people. Right. And then fell into that world of the Hecklinas and, and Peaches Christ and all of that. And uh, uh, then came, that's where well, my first real feature came from. And that's Baby Jane. And that's Baby Jane. All right. And that brings us to both the intersection of queer and horror, because Baby Jane is a film you made that does feature drag performers from the San Francisco area uh, and is both an homage and drag parody of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And uh, in my mind, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane very much is a horror film. I know that some historians... Uh, will eschew that label mostly because there are film critics who don't like the the label horror because it's a bad word to certain creme de la uh-huh, creme. Uh-huh. But I think that Baby Jane and that that film that Robert Aldridge created literally invented a new subgenre of horror. Yes, totally. Uh, that we see the seeds of in Sunset Boulevard, of course. Exactly. Exactly. But, um, 
and of course, what, what, what did they call them? Hag films, hag exploitation, which is really which is, kind of cruel. Yeah, uh, oh, it is. Yeah, it, it just, it's just fun to. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I love the word. Yeah, that's it's what like, I bet. You know, if someone wanted to call me a hag, I'd be yeah. fine with it. And, but and what were they in their fifties? They were like 52, 53. I know, they were not old at all. They were not old at all, but that was considered a hag. Right, that's terrible. This industry. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that movie just really gave new teeth to people like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Exactly. And you see then Betty hops a, a plane and does The Nanny with Hammer. Right. And The Anniversary. Right. And then Joan did those Freddie Francis movies. Yeah. Trog notwithstanding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which they're doing in San Francisco as we speak on stage. With Hecklina, who's in... Exactly, in Baby, Baby Jane. Jane. Exactly. So, obviously, the gays, just like they uh, have always embraced Bewitched, they always loved whatever happened to Baby Jane, because there is a heightened sense to it. The character of Baby Jane in the original movie is pretty much a drag character anyway. Totally. She's totally. in, like, paint yeah. and all of this. Exactly. She's stuck in an era and she, she feels fabulous. Right. And <laughs> Just like me. <laughs> tell me about that moment when, you know, you've been gearing up to direct, you know that you want to direct, I know that you've always loved classic cinema, but what was the incident or, like, the inciting moment where you're watching Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and you said, I'm going to make this movie, but I'm going to make the gayest version possible. <laughs> well, it was, you know, what's funny is that I realized that I always had the idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, for years after going and going to a theater uh, and seeing it in this in the big theater to watch whatever happened to Baby Jane, which I, I think I went to the new art, let's say. And then even I remember when I first moved to San Francisco, going to the Castro to see it, you know. And, of course, that's only one of the best ways to see it is at the Castro when everybody's commenting on it or yeah. or whatever. 1,400-seat theater exactly. with 1,400 raving queens Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then what came together was there's a, a play or a musical called um, Mommy Dearest. Is it Mommy Dearest? Um, uh, it is with Joan Crawford and Christmas with the Crawfords. Excuse hmm. me. Christmas with the Crawfords. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. No. It's a wonderful musical play that takes place on Christmas Eve. Joan Crawford and the kids are there and the interviewer and they're they're just sitting around to start do their interview and someone knocks on the door and it's Judy Garland. Right. Well, also, it just happens to be that the maid who answers the door, the first door, is Baby Jane. Not Betty Davis, but Baby, Baby Jane. Jane. So throughout this whole show, and it's a almost a two-hour show with wonderful big musical numbers. I mean, you have Ethel Merman comes. and I mean, it's just this huge, big, ridiculous, fun thing, which actually this Christmas, I know they're going to be doing it in Palm Springs. Hmm. Anyway, uh, um, they did it in New York. Uh, last year. Now, is it played straight or are they like kind of taking the piss out of Joan Crawford in this? They're taking the piss out of her. Okay. I mean, they've got hair that's that's about five feet tall. Mm. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, well, five five inches tall, whatever. It's right. big. 
five feet would be a bit dramatic. Right. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. No, I've seen people pull it off. Yeah. La- Lady Bunny, hello. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, uh, so I, uh, oh, I'm doing terrible with this microphone. It really keeps karate chopping uh, our equipment. You know, because I get the so excited. The show has gone from discussions of violence to true violence. <laughs> I get so excited. I get so excited. So I went to see this show, uh, and I watched this particular person, Matthew Martin, who was playing the Baby Jane character as Baby Jane. Right. And I was sitting in the front seat, very tiny little theater, and uh, he was just amazing. I was just like going, my God, watch how he's, everything is so subtle. And that was the biggest thing is we'd all seen the Betty Davis or Baby Jane take by Charles Pierce and so many others, which I adored and loved. But this was the first time I ever saw it done subtly, subtly, whatever. And and you're like, going, no, he's he's a master at this. Mm-hmm. Everything is so so thought out, right. and it's it's not exact, but it's an amazing interpretation, his own interpretation. Right. And I went, wouldn't that be funny if that whole idea that I had, which I knew was totally ridiculous and stupid, right. and something I would never do, I would ta- do it, and I'd see if he would do it, and we could make a feature film about it. Wouldn't that be funny? And there you go. That was the spark. I was also simultaneously trying to get a movie that I wrote called, uh, um, I can't remember, but <laughs> but it was about Elizabeth Montgomery. Okay. And it was the last three months of her life and how it, how it affected me. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, oh, the, uh, the Diary of a Mad Hairdresser. That's what it was called. And I wrote the book in, 19, in 2000. It came out in 2000 about my experiences and how how it affected me and how it felt. But it had a lot about her. And I kind of narrowed it down more about her right. and how amazing she was with flashbacks. And we actually got pretty far. Uh, I did have a uh, producing team and, and uh, all of that. And we were taking meetings. And it was actually uh, we got Christina Applegate interested in playing Bewitched. We even got her name attached. Uh, uh, which she would have been amazing. And she you can imagine. Been, yeah. She's a wonderful, wonderful actress. Uh, and we had all these uh, amazing people together. And then we had like 75% of the financing and it all fell through because of the economy hit. Gotcha. So instead of feeling uh, um, like, okay, I'm, that's terrible, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like, oh, you evil people. You know, I really understood what was going on. I understood what was going on in the economy. I said, what can I do with nothing for nothing? Right. You know, how can I put this together? And so I went that I'm going to do that silly ridiculous thing that I thought of. It'll be my first feature, Baby Jane. And I talked to a really important director and I said, what's your advice? He says, find a, find a niche and kick ass. Right. Just do it. I went, fine, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and boy, did you. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, you know, I have to ask because, you know, we've, we've had Peaches Christ on yeah. and we've had other people who, who have talked about um, this sort of relationship between drag and horror, and for for horror queens, the the relationship you know varies. Jackie Beat's answer is different from Peaches, is different from the Boulet brothers. But here you are, you took a classic horror film and made the drag version of it. So, do you think there's a correlation between the art of drag and horror, and what do you think it is? Hmm. <laughs> That's quite a question. I like to ask the serious I, I question. I have a sip of coffee if I can find the hole. <laughs> We've heard that before. Mm. Mm. No, I didn't find the hole. (laughs) 
listeners in Duluth now there questioning what's exactly. happening. Where's the hole? <laughs> um, <laughs> call me later. Um, uh, uh, so the, uh, the question again, drag being uh, attached to horror. Yeah, do whole... you think there is... Uh, it, it, today's horror, though, is yeah. very different than what, you know, I mean, uh, what I grew up in was going and seeing Diana Ross done by a million people. Right. Um, uh, just by putting on the big hair and a right. long dress. And they weren't necessarily good. Right. That's horror. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was like, I screamed. I right. wanted to run away, but you didn't want to be rude to the the, the performer. performer. Yeah. You know, I never wanted to. And then, of course, the ones who don't even lip sync right, they just open their mouth wide like a ventriloquist dummy. Right. I'm really fascinated, like, if you're going to perform, like, learn the <laughs> Could words. Could you learn the words that you yeah. probably have done five million times because that's your thing? Yeah. I, you know, I've been drag adjacent for so long. I find, like, I'm very open to a lot of different performers. But, like, if I'm going to go see you lip sync, you better know the words. Yes. That's, like, that's it. Yeah. Just kick ass with the with yeah. that. You know, show show me yeah. that you can because that that kind of drag can be amazing too when it's when it's really a hundred percent. It's it's really amazing. On a few occasions, clubs have asked me to like you know be on the judge if they're like Halloween drag pageant, <laughs> and I will. Uh, that's usually my only question. I'm like, you didn't know the words, did you? And what I do, <laughs> what I do give queens credit for is most of the time I'm like, no. <laughs> oh my I'm god! Like, well, right. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for telling me. Yeah, because like, <laughs> I'm glad that you did know the words, but that's what happened. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, I could see that. It definitely, I mean, especially modern horror. The about modern horror. I mean, I remember the first time, especially Tranny Shack, when 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 there'd be blood and there'd be all sorts of stuff spurting into the yeah. the audience. That was definitely in a horror tone. It was yeah. they took horror, definitely drag. And they still do. I know right. that they still do it, but it seems a lot calmer than it was. Or am I just used to it? I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, um, it's not quite a shock. That show has now uh, transformed into a show called Mother, which is done at Oasis in San yep. Francisco. And I think it's just the different landscape. Yeah. I think probably what yeah. used to be shocking when you would go to a club then is not as shocking now because we exactly. have things like uh, Dragula on television and Drag Race. Exactly. Where the world is being exposed to different kinds of drag. Yeah. I love Dragula. I think those guys have done a great job, the Poulet Brothers. Me I think too. they're really, really cool. They're friends of the show. We love them. Well, um, they're very good. They're really good. So from uh, Baby Jane, you... Uh, also did Hush Up Sweet Charlotte, which yes. is another foray into the world of taking Betty Davis <laughs> and, and dragging her up. You got Mink Stoll from the world of John Waters well, movies to join us. Join I you. had to, you know, and that was that was uh, and even the company who uh, Region Entertainment, who who gave me the money, which was very different. My first film that I was given the money to actually make it. Right. Oi. Right. You know, because <laughs> I'd also done I Want to Get Married the right. year before that. Was that, in, that was in between the that two. That was in between. But my goal was always to do three right. of these films. Baby Jane, which uh, uh, going, going back to Baby Jane just a little bit is the one thing that I wanted to do is I didn't want to just make a drag movie, but I wanted to make it serious. Right. Is I wanted to make it feel real at the same time, to feel horror at the same time, to feel scared or sad. or And I also wanted to make you have more empathy for Baby the Baby Jane, Jane character, yeah. which I uh, uh, don't feel that they did enough in the original film. Right. And because it really was a sad, pathetic thing that she, her whole life was. Yeah. And then to find out at the end that it was opposed upon her. Right. 
you know, is sad. It it's, is sad. It's very, very sad. So anyway, my dream was always to do three right. because I just love threes, as we mm-hmm. all do, you know. And so Hush Up was always there in my head that I knew that I wanted to make Hush Up Sweet Charlotte. And, of course, I would use the same baby Jane. Uh, of finding Varla Jean Merman or becoming friends with, with uh, Richard, uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Robson. Uh, um, I knew that he was perfect for Olivia de Havilland, and he'd been already doing it on stage. He travels with right. a, a, not a hush up. I don't know what he, I can't remember what he calls it, but it's something in the same realm. And then who else but Mink Stoll yeah. to play Agnes Moorhead as that character? And she channeled it. For those, if you haven't seen it, you go see it. It's it's on Amazon Prime, easy to find. There's many venues you can see it. Right. Vimeo, Amazon Prime, blah blah blah. And you'll you'll especially if you're a, a Mink Stoll freak. Oh, like I am, you're just going to eat it up yeah. because she she becomes she wasn't her typical mink that I love and adore, but right. she really took this on in a very different way and became Agnes Moorhead playing that character. I think Mink's a great actress. Yes, I think when uh, given a, a good role, she can really really rock it out, and she did. And of course, it 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 it, it had. It had dialogue. It had it had feelings. It had right. emotions. You know, because uh, the the storyline is fun. And actually, actually, the original horror of the film I don't think was that great, but it had a lot of great moments. Yeah. I'm hoping that I made in some way a more cohesive film right. because I did fill in the background that was not there in the in the movie. Right. And, uh, like uh, in the original movie, and it could have been from cutting. You're jumping from one thing to the next, and you're going, well, what, what, what happened over there? Right. Well, I filled it in. I went. I just went, all right, I'm going to build more background. Right. You know, and give everybody real characters of who they are and why they are. You know, I even made the character the Mink Stoll was in that they, she and uh, uh, Olivia de Havilland and the Betty Davis character were all friends as children. They all knew each other, but she was from the poor, the, uh, the other side of the tracks, tracks yeah. you know. So, anyway. And you said you want to make a trilogy. What's your third film? Uh, it would be, um, uh, <laughs> what is it? What is my third film? <laughs> Are you asking me? No, no, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> we've also, we've, I've written the script and almost got to write it, uh, to do it, but my doc came into play and it, right. it just kind of became the number one thing and the most important thing in my career to do this doc that we'll talk about in a second. Yes. But uh, what is it? It is Dead Ringer. Dead Ringer. So, and we're calling it Dead, Dead, Dead Ringer. <laughs> <laughs> and Dead Ringer is a movie for fans who don't know that Betty Davis actually, uh, rather than play against Joan Crawford or Olivia de Havilland, she plays against herself, exactly. where she plays twins uh, and uh, a beleaguered Carl Malden has to put up with her. Um, that's right. It's Carl Malden, right? Yes, it Dance is. With it is. Um, it's a movie I adore, but I haven't watched in a while. Um, I could. I, I can't wait to see that. It's actually a good movie, yeah. which is fun. It's a good story. And that will be, uh, we'll bring back Varla to be her best friend. And I'm actually uh, rewritten the part of the best friend, which, of course, I'm not going to, you know, uh, I've filled it out to where she's right. in the entire thing mm-hmm. because I thought that'd be funny. Is if uh, there, there's a scene where she says, oh, she comes and she in the movie, she's she comes by um, and sees her right after this big funeral. She says, oh, darling, it's so great to see you. I'm off to, you know, wherever in Mexico because all the boys are so lovely, blah, blah, blah. And you don't see her until later. So I went, I just have her leave the room, uh, leave the house. And then she turns around. She comes back. What am I thinking? What, what, what am I thinking? I've got to be here with you every minute, every single minute. <laughs> so I literally have her like walk 
walking up the stairs after she said goodbye, and she's at the top of the stairs. Are you right, dear? You know? <laughs> and that would be Varlow? <laughs> that would be Varlow. That would be great. Because it's a perfect part for her. Uh, so, yes, yeah, a drag trilogy of homage to uh, exploitation horror movies. I love that. Uh, I do briefly, before we talk about the Advocate documentary, you mentioned the film I Want to Get Married. Yes. Which is a movie you made before... Same-sex marriage had actually legally passed across the land. Well, it was just when um, it was. It's a movie about yeah, Prop Eight. Exactly, yeah. it's a movie about Prop Eight, and uh, so it was something that I really, really felt strongly about. Mm-hmm. So it was my little political statement on reality, and it was about this kind of nerdy guy who uh, um, sees everybody wanting to get married. So it is legal in California at that moment, but in six days it's going to be voted on whether it'll, you know, happen or not. And uh, so all of a sudden he decides to make it his goal to be married in six days and find the perfect person. He's a bit of a nerd. He doesn't really understand how that is possible or what that looks like. So, of course, he has a friend who kind of helps him along and— it, it's befuddled, and, and, and I did create a gay nerd, which is something nobody saw before, and I got a lot of bad bad uh, uh, press because of that, because I just didn't—why are you taking Matthew Montgomery and making him a nerd? You know, why are you— uh, People uh, had a problem with a different presentation of a gay man. Exactly. Like, did, they wanted you to have, like, a sexy twink kind of lead? Or I like, think what? so. That's interesting. I think they, they did not—they didn't understand, and the, the reviews that were good said, isn't this— great to finally see right. that person in the gay community. No, I think that that's a really important discussion that doesn't get brought up enough. I mean, I've talked about it off and on about this this phenomenon that happens in uh, gay movies specifically where we need more of them, but we also need a more diverse group of them. That's exactly what I felt. I said, why are we watching one pretty little boy do over, over and, and over and over, over again, again. Yeah. and you know and a lot of these gay films well you know i'm not going to go into it <laughs> well i got you so there's a lot of good ones too there are i mean we, you and i uh, are both frequent attendees of lgbt film festivals exactly. and uh, i see some of my favorite movies every year yeah uh, yeah. At those, uh, in fact, some of my best friends I've made at those festivals. Yeah. So that's. Uh, but I don't think that even as a supporter of cinema, that it is wrong of us to also at the same time demand more. Exactly. Yeah. We need to have that broad, broader visual of yeah. who our community is, which is everything. Yeah. Every color, every uh, type. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just all, and we don't see them. Uh, that that could go to my new series that I started as well that right. I, I got to do this year, which was for the first time seeing five different um, shows. This is called Falling for Angels that I right. talked about, where you see five different episodes and they're all completely different people that we've never seen before. Right. In an American show, right. it wasn't. It wasn't the Taiwan, in, you know, uh, a film from Taiwan that came in and it's going right. to be in the film festival. No, it is those. It's directed, written, 
you know, and the actors are. Right. And and uh, Falling for Angels is a series where every episode takes place in a different neighborhood in Los Angeles. Exactly. Highlighting different exactly. kinds of people exactly. and the LGBT experience. You directed and wrote an episode with Danny Francesi from Mean Girls. Exactly. Falling, uh, mine is Silver Lake. Right. Shocking, because I live in Silver Lake. Right. I don't know Weird what they were works. thinking. Yeah. I don't know what they were thinking. I've lived in the Silver Lake since uh, the 89, back and forth. So right. I know that community very well. And I do happen to go out occasionally right. in the neighborhood and discuss things with people, people. in Silver Lake. So strange how that works. Exactly. <laughs> and even though I was in the middle of doing uh, the doc, which we'll talk about later, um, uh, which was all encompassing, um, right. they asked me to do this because they knew that it was right. So I had uh, uh, two days to write a script and two days to shoot this movie. Plenty the of show, time. The show, I should yeah. say. Yeah, plenty of time. But I, I'm so proud of that show because of all the diversity I was allowed to do. Right. As well as we have Calpurnia Adams in the uh, episode who is just brilliant. She's amazing. She's just, she really blew me away, actually. Um, uh, I really, uh, we really brought a lot out of her and I'm sure no one will have ever seen her like this, which is wonderful. And I can't wait. I have, ideas to write something for her because she's so amazing. I'd like to see her work more. Yes. She's great. Yeah. Uh, well, what I like about the project uh, and your involvement and the way that it highlights different kinds of people, because, uh, you know, I, I've, I've seen the series and every episode does touch upon, like you said, we have trans characters and people of size and people of color and the different neighborhood socioeconomic things reflecting different aspects of the community, which does in a way, lead us perfectly to the documentary you just finished. Because the documentary that you just finished is about the 50 years of one of the most important publications, I think, in queer history, because they really hit the streets and fought for all aspects of our community. And that's The Advocate. Yes. And uh, this is a fairly big deal. You know, anybody who is part of our community, especially from a certain era, knows what impact that publication had. They were producing The Advocate in a time when it was still illegal in many parts of the yeah, country to be gay. To be gay. So tell me a little bit about this documentary and your your just involvement in this journey because I can imagine that no matter how storied your work is, you probably just got opened up to a whole new range of, of things. It was more than I ever thought it would do to me personally, mentally, physically. I had no idea what I was in for, what kind of a journey that I was in for. Mm -hmm. Learning and finding and digging from people who were there who were important for our gay history. Right. Starting in 1967, here in Los Angeles, actually in my neighborhood in Silver Lake, where uh, we actually had the first large, um, some people call it a riot. It wasn't really a riot, but protest is really a, a more appropriate because right. people didn't scream and yell. But there are almost 400 people. Is this the one at the Black Cat? At the Black Cat, 1967. The actual, uh, uh, it took place, I believe, in February 11th, 1967. Mm -hmm. After a particular incident that happened at the Black Cat on New Year's Eve. 
which I recreate in the in the documentary, where seven undercover police officers are waiting for midnight. It was illegal for men to kiss. And of course, uh, who wouldn't kiss at midnight uh, on New Year's Eve? So right. why would you put seven undercover police officers in a gay club at seven? Uh, wait until midnight so that they could... I feel like some of them took the gig just to get a smooch. Well, that is a very good possibility, of course. (laughs) The other most interesting thing was is at the time, the LAPD used to hire... be actors I, I, uh, to do this, and they would train them how to take care of the situation. <laughs> Can you? It's so Hollywood, right? Long-suffering actors taking any gig, exactly. <laughs> but they were brutal. Yeah. I mean, they beat the they beat these people mm. up. They didn't just arrest them; they beat them. So it was that one of those "I've had enough" moments, right? So that they all and it took it a while, took a while because they wanted to organize it correctly because right. they really wanted to have their voices heard and not be just screaming and yelling and running around. But they wanted to like go, let's do a protest. It was also in the middle though when we were the women's lib. Um, uh, we were talking, you know, gay rights, uh, um, not, not just gay rights, but black and Hispanic and all the different parts of what LA. Oh, and the hippie. Yeah. The hippie thing on Sunset. So they actually tried to have it happen almost identically at the same time. Uh, There was only two others that did end up having it at the same time. One was on Sunset Boulevard. But uh, you just, this, this, this was such a journey because you start feeling it. You start learning so much information right. about how, much, how difficult it was right. for those people to be gay, for right. those people to try to be who they were, mm-hmm. to be it, it, anyone who thinks that this is a choice. Wow, what kind of hatred would we have for ourselves if we went, yeah, I want that one. Right. You know, that's what I think I want to do because I know how brutal and cruel it will be. Yeah. You know, we do it because we, we either— we we cannot any longer hold something so deeply inside ourselves right. that we must become ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to hate ourselves for the rest of our lives. Right. And many people did, especially back then. Uh, uh, Frank Carger, I think his name is, is he was a he ran for um, he was the first out gay man to ever run for public uh, for uh, president a few years back as a Republican. Strangely enough, not today's Republican, as he said very clearly. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> very different beast. Very different beast on how he hated himself every day, uh, being a gay man in West Hollywood. But anyway, the the documentary "A Long Road to Freedom." Uh, the advocate celebrates 50 years is not necessarily about the advocate. It's sprinkled through it. It's right. about our history. It's about right. getting to people like Ivy Putini and Alexei Romanov, who helped organize that protest on, on the 11th, which mm-hmm. I also recreated. And uh, it gives you their story from them, you know, and yeah, there were so many times I was crying Well, and there's such a trajectory. You look at 1967, you're talking about the illegality of just being gay. Right. Uh, And then go 50 years, you've got a lot that happens. Exactly. I mean, once you hit the 80s, that's a whole other brand of tragedy. That's a whole other world, you know, and that's a whole other chapter of that. And, And what was so fascinating to see that in reality, we were moving along quite well in the right. 70s. Until AIDS. Until AIDS. AIDS right. put the big stop on it, and then we had the incredible huge backlash where right. people were losing their jobs, losing their life, losing every their family. Right. Everything was falling apart. And we were fortunate to have uh, Michael Gottlieb in the documentary, and he was the first man to 
deal with a case mm-hmm. here in Los Angeles at UCLA. And uh, he's throughout that particular chapter, which is the AIDS chapter, right. talking about how it affected him personally, which is so exciting, right. as well as th- where how it was affecting our, our world. Uh, right. uh, uh, so it, it, that was amazing. To have him, it, it was a. It still is. I watch it, and I, I've only watched the whole thing, from beginning to end, about a week ago. Right, and it was. It, it, you don't even know what to do with yourself. I know right. the audience is going. I, I don't. I can't imagine they're going to even clap. Right, the first time it's really screened, which will be at Outfest this year. But anyway, <laughs> I've heard of that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sure they're going to be numb. Right, and it must have been just such a journey. For you. For me, yeah, yeah. personally, because it's just, especially the AIDS, I mean, I lived so right in the center of, of that whole particular time, and I right. am HIV positive, and did almost die, but I didn't, right. obviously. And uh, uh, so it hit so many buttons inside myself. What, mm-hmm. a, what an amazing journey for my, you know, it was very healing as far as that's concerned, but I haven't healed yet. You know what I mean? I'm right. in the process still. It's probably uh, one of those things you'll be healing forever. Yes. Yeah. Yes. One of the most important things that um, Michael Gobley's set, Gottlieb, excuse me, not Gobloom. <laughs> Gobloom. He He said that people who really lived in that era who not just the people who had it, but who lived in it and dealt with the people that that were in it yeah. uh, all have PTSD. And we don't understand the impact because our our beingness is not set up for that kind of impact right. for you on a on a Tuesday knowing that you have to go to another funeral. Right. You don't know what to do with that. Right. That's just like going to war. Yeah. Well, when we talk about fictional horror so often here but this is true horror this is true this is the true and and this is what you were talking about at the beginning like you want the fiction as the escapism as the catharsis yeah because often the true horror is so much worse exactly exactly uh i think this is such an important undertaking uh this documentary and i'm so excited and proud of you that that you you are, are sharing this because i think that uh, this history is so important. And I think that despite the rise of so much content in the world and the fact that so much is available, uh, as great as that is, especially for artists trying to make it, yeah. uh, there's also the danger that like s- the things that came before us just will get lost. Yes, And it's not just media. It's not just the TV movies. It's not just this, but our actual history. Yes. Because there's so much information yeah. always being yeah. like thrown at us that if for future generations of LGBTQ people to completely to understand what came before, if we have to put it in the form of a movie so they get it, yes, then that's so important. And it is the best way to show it. Yeah. You know, it really, really is. And I do try to make it light. And there are people on it that are funny, like a Bruce Valanche who right. tells jokes while he's, you know, thinking about going to the baths or Amistad Maupin, who's who, you know, remembers being at Thursday night coming out of the the blow a blow place where he had blown all these people. And, you know, and he talks like that. And I just right. love that we have this in a film right. of someone talking real right. about a real life. <laughs> the most celebrated authors ever. <laughs> exactly. Talking about blowing talking people. About yeah. blowing people and, yeah. uh, and coming out and seeing the advocate in a 
in one of those newsstands going, oh, my God, look, I'm on the cover. So he broke it open to take a magazine <laughs> because, of course, he had no money. He was so broke. Right. You know, and he just blown so many people. He didn't have any time. Oh, well. <laughs> Sorry, Amistad. If you hear this, I don't mean this negatively. It's fabulous. It's I sure amazing. hope that Amistad Moffin listens to my show. Exactly. I'll send it to him. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love his books. Um, He's amazing. I've layered. I've layered a reference to uh, Tales of the City in almost every script I've ever written. Uh, you can't help it, right? Yeah, it's just always it's, there. It's, it's magic. It could be as simple as a character calling someone else baby cake. Love so, it. Yeah, love but, it. Uh, so obviously, I'm going to urge all my listeners to see this documentary when it comes out, and you should. And I don't want you to spoil anything of the history, but what is one thing, uh, a takeaway, and I know I'm sure there are many, but what is one bit of wisdom doing this project that you can share that you can impart with my listeners? Well, I think I think it's just going to really impact anyone who doesn't completely understand what has been fought for. Right. Uh, uh, that uh, uh, there has been so many pieces to this puzzle to take us where we are today. Mm-hmm. And we get to, thank goodness, in, in my documentary, get to see many of those puzzle pieces. Right. And they get to speak about it from a knowing place right. that I think it's going to. I think it's going to help become be, an individual become more. Right. Because when we know our history, of course, we we become more and then we can respect and we can honor. And it makes you I think it's going to to some people. I think it might let a little fire inside them to go. I well, so. I can, you know, and you, to me, it's always been I mean, I know me as a gay person. I came out very young. I was 15 years old, which was very difficult. In 19, and um, <laughs> very, very difficult. <laughs> and, you know, to to grow up in Hollywood when it, it still wasn't okay, even yeah. though there was that inner circle Pocket, that yeah. I could do that to. But I, I didn't realize what a thing I was doing. And just by being a decent human being, just smiling, having a good attitude and being friendly and uh, which I didn't wasn't sure that I was that until I ran into an old friend and they said, oh, you are always smiling. You're always friendly. Going, oh, good. I'm really glad I was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and to know that that helped shift people's minds. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things I always did, of course, uh, women in the industry, I did lots of stars, lots of people in the industry in general, producers, directors, writers females and then I'd go home and their their husband would come home and you'd feel that black f- thing coming oh it's the gay one who happens to be in the house uh, not always of course right. but it was common right and but you could see how if they sat down at the kitchen table because I'd be doing it in the kitchen right right all of a sudden they would like oh this is like a real human being yeah right. <laughs> you know and you start shifting by just being there. real yeah you know, and that's all that's all right. I'm saying that these if you can just do that. Right. That's major. That shifts people. That Definitely. changes, you know. And that's true. I think even to highlight the struggles and the things that people went through is important for this generation. Exactly. We need we yeah. need to know again. We know we need to know where we came from. I agree. You know, and speaking because, you know, wrapping things up in a nice little bow uh, before before we head off into the night, there is a final topic that I wanted to talk to you about because it sort of is the culmination of these things. Your love of old Hollywood. Definitely. Uh, your uh, commitment to highlighting the struggles of the LGBT people who have come before. There is yes. a particular individual who uh, is is part of your past uh, family history uh, who 
definitely didn't get to benefit from a more liberated world, uh, but was part of old Hollywood. And I know is very near and dear to your heart. And that's Montgomery Cliff. Yes. Yes. Uh, first off, you are a distant relative. What's the relation? It's, for the it's, it's a third cousin yeah. of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I guess whatever distance that is, it's right. like, you know, I've, I've been told many times and I can figure it out, but it sounds like gobbly goop when you say right. it. And it was it was interesting because it was his brother who told us how we were related, right? Uh, because he used to come to the house. Brother, his brother Brooke, Brooke Clift would come to the house because he lived in Hollywood here. Right. Uh, never met Monty because Monty at that time, by the t- time I was old enough, was still alive for part of it, but I was still just a kid. Right. And he wouldn't at that time. He wouldn't go to L.A. anymore. Right. So, uh, um, but his brother lived here, and uh, he actually made it his whole thing to talk about the importance of his brother and the things that he did right. and and how he changed acting. Right. I mean, he really was the first. Uh, everybody thinks it was um, uh, Brando and um, like James, Dean. James Dean, but in reality, he was the first one and James Dean and Brando came mm-hmm. after. And James Dean actually was in love with Monty and right. used to sit and stand, I should say, out in front of his house for for hours, just hoping to see a glimpse of Monty to come out. And of course, you know a lot of this because you wrote my amazing, our amazing short film, Monty. Monty. Well, which, I was I didn't bring up the subject, so we would necessarily talk about. No, me, but I want but, yep. to. Okay, uh, because you deserve that. Because well, you. you so beautifully. Uh, you know, at the time, I was uh, beginning to write the the script, and I finally went. I don't I, I can't see it mm-hmm. and so I, I went Michael <laughs> <laughs> and I had read some of your stuff and I said this is, guy is amazing I says I think it feels like you could see what I can't see to weave these I had these stories but I didn't have a weave or, or well, the together. short film Monty uh, that we collaborated on, uh, for me in the writing of it, and I'm sure, I don't know that we've ever talked about it, but there is a correlation in my mind to my work in the world of horror movies and that. Because I view the the, the short that we did uh, for listeners who uh, need a little more background is really about the final days of Monty's life. And it's sort of a fever dream uh, and sort of like the lost dreams and hopes that, that he had before he passed exactly. away. And to me, because the whole thing is told from his deathbed and these sort of like beautiful but sort of horrific images, yeah. there is a horror story in a dramatic way there. Totally. And I I connected with it on a real emotional side because I viewed it as, you know, what is the horror of knowing that you never got to live your life as freely as you would have liked? No matter what you achieved. He was a big star. Yeah. But he always felt trapped. And you could see it. Yeah. And um, I'm proud of that piece. But I wanted to bring it up because I know that Montgomery Clift is sort of a through line of the work that you do. And there is a feature that you want to do at some point. That is, well. that is, it's, it's, and it's, it's, I'm going to make this feature. Yeah. It's, it's not a, um, uh, if it's when. Right. And I, I just feel that if any, I have, if I've ever felt that there was a whole force behind me for this mm-hmm. particular movie out of anything or believe in that, I do believe that this has a force. And uh, we are actually, because this year has been gone, so to speak, yeah. because I would have started it uh, way back when or or got the moving. Thank goodness now I'm back on track. I, I've got a casting director on board 
uh, I'm just putting together a new reel, and then he's going to go and start putting um, uh, offers on names to right. help assist the process. Because if I have names attached, then I can start getting going. Right. So uh, Emma Roberts, Emma, if you're listening, we want Emma Roberts to play Elizabeth Taylor. We did. We love you and scream for. We think you're amazing. <laughs> we think you're amazing. So I uh, love and her. I, I really I, do. I do too. And and I just believe that she can be that Elizabeth Taylor that you. I just knew it as mm. soon as I saw a movie where she played genteel. She was soft and sweet, and right. I went, "Oh, it's there." And then I looked at the angles. Do you think it's? I think it's interesting because, like, I think the world right now totally sees Emma Roberts as she is directed by Ryan Murphy. And, <laughs> yeah, and he it's likes screaming. to use her as a very specific character, which works for him. So yeah. I, there's no there's no yeah. issue there. But like, I think the the danger of of television sometimes is that there are some truly talented actors who we see so frequently as a certain type. Uh, that we forget that they are actually actors. Yes. Uh, and she plays that kind of like snarky, bitchy girl She's so well. perfect. But she also has a lot of range. Yeah. And there are people like Gillian Anderson, who like the world like knows right. is a scully on the X-Files. But if you are a, th- a fan of theater, you know that she is one of the most decorated theater performers in exactly. the West End. And, and someone that you really... I want to see her do not Scully just because it's a break. Totally. Yeah. She's so brilliant. Every yeah. time she's in something, you're so excited. Right. That, and it's not Scully. It's somebody yeah. new, you know. But we love brilliant. Scully, too. Oh, so, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Uh, she, I believe Emma definitely. I, I don't know why. It's just, ugh, I right. see it. I see it. And so she can't, she's not allowed to say no. <laughs> she's just, I think she should just understand that she should just come on board and, and say, it. fine. You know? <laughs> well, she comes from a Hollywood family. family. Yeah, she'd play Hollywood yeah. royalty. Why not? Exactly. exactly. Uh, well, speaking of movies and shows and things, what have you seen lately that you loved? Uh, I I did love. Uh, I think it was the quiet, quiet, uh, a quiet place, a yeah. quiet place. I thought was brilliant because it's actually a really small movie in many ways. It's mm-hmm. Aliens, of course, right. um, and um, many other films. But it's it just ha- it, it's it's to me one of the most perfect type of horror or whatever you'd want to call that, just because it was lots of jumps. I right. mean, uh, uh, my boyfriend's, uh, you know, hand hurt so bad because I grab. <laughs> I'm a grabber and I won't let go. And he finally, uh, he was keeping his hands away from me because he knew, knew who I was, but he, I was getting so crazed that he finally went, okay, fine. And he put my hand in, in, in my lap and I went, so I could kill it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good boyfriend. Uh, uh, uh. But I mean, I love I, I love all forms of horror. I right. love ghost stories. Oh my god, I love ghost stories. Matter of fact, I think I've heard something about someone I may know that might be writing a short film about a ghost story. I don't know what you're talking. I, I don't about. know, That's... but I'm waiting. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> well, let's just say that person has a few deadlines to finish. Oh, I'm sure, and believe me. You know, I'm just teasing, of course, because oh, no, I, yeah. I totally understand this world uh, and how many things come up. I'm Because, you know, I'm also doing a, a pilot or a pilot slash web series, but it's set for a pilot. I did with uh, Lonnie Anderson, Ray Dong Chong, and uh, 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 Deborah Wilson. Oh, yeah. I shot that a couple weeks ago, and I'm just editing that up right now. Okay, you are a busy man, Billy Club. That's very busy. I love it. I love it. I'm well, very happy. What's next for you? What, what, what can you talk about that's coming up next? Well, I think the biggest thing is the, the, the doc. documentary. The doc is coming out. It will uh, premiere at, at Outfest. And, Excellent. Uh, I'm so excited. It will be a huge premiere. It'll have the biggest theater. Matter of fact, they're trying to find the theater now mm-hmm. uh, because they know that it will 
people will want to come to it right. uh, with a big party afterwards. And what's so cool is a lot. I'm glad that we're doing it here in Los Angeles. That was right. my my dream to have it here because there were other thoughts of different cities. Yeah. Because New York was possibly going to be the first one. It and makes sense here. Because And also the majority of the people, they'll be able to come to this right. that are in the, the documentary. Yes, we have a few that are in New York and they're already planning one in New York, which right. is great. And we'll do a few film festivals. I don't know how many film festivals they want. It's wonderful to, to have a company that, you know, I'm not doing it all. Because, yeah. you know, when I did Baby Jane, I was out there hacking it. You know, yeah. here, everybody, come see Baby Jane. You know, which did, did screen at Frameline in the Castor Theater to a sold-out right. crowd so many years which ago. Which is not an easy theater to sell out. So that's a big uh, <laughs> Excuse me. tip of the hat. It was. It was It was shocking. And I uh, did that also with Hush Up Sweet Charlotte. Did not put it in the film festival. We just showed it. It sold out. Well, uh, where can people find you? Oh, well, just I'm just on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. Billy Cliff Film on, on Twitter, I believe. Uh, and, of course, on Facebook. I've got two of them. One is my f- film one and one is me. And uh, I, 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 have P- I do have my little boyfriend who does all the in- Instagrams and all that stuff for me so that I don't have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse well, me. Uh, Billy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's a joy. This was a great conversation. I am so happy uh, to have had you on, and I'm so excited for all the great work you're doing. Thank you. Listeners uh, who want a little bit of drag with their horror, please check out uh, Billy's drag homage parody films, Hush Up, Sweet Charlie. They're all on Amazon Jane. Prime, all of them. You can also see his episode of Falling for Angels on Amazon Prime, and please keep your Eyes and ears open for the Advocate documentary coming out. What's the title again for everyone? A Long Road to Freedom. Uh, fifty year, uh, uh, The Advocate celebrates 50 years. So A Long Road to Freedom, The Advocate celebrates 50 years. Because once that comes out this summer, it's soon going to be coming to you. And you have a lot of history that you are is waiting for you. Uh, thank you, Billy. Thank you. What a pleasure. Always to be a pleasure with, with Michael. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always, in Glam and Gore. Good night, and good luck. <laughs>